It's true. Although we should start this again and not talk about current weather conditions because by the time this podcast <laughs> comes out, it will all be different. Right. Let's just start again. Starting again at one minute and 50 seconds. Here we go. <laughs> if you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get the ball. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Style Guide podcast with your hosts, Dave Morris and Stephen Ray Orr. I'm Dave Morris. Across the country for me is, of course, Stephen Ray Orr. How are you, Steve-O? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How about yourself, Dave? Uh, I'm great. I'm excited about today's podcast. Mammoth. Yeah, David Mammoth. And uh, I'm excited for two reasons. One, I enjoy David Mammoth's work a lot. Uh, but two, this is sort of our first like episode of the podcast where we're starting to get into a little bit more of what the vision of this podcast was about in the first place, which was sort of finding a style that you and I love to dissect because we love to dissect styles and think about it in almost an improvisational way, how we would maybe recreate that style in an improvised way, because both of us are, of course, members of Paper Street Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And David Mamet is the first show of Paper Street's season five which is uh it's going to be going up in october so that's exciting it is exciting and it's a it's a good start for the season because mamet has a good mix of theater and movie technique uh in all of his work yeah which is why i really liked it as an opening for the season because it is uh it's a film film style sort of right so people will know it and be familiar with it uh, but it is also a theatrical style, which allows us as Paper Street to get back to sort of that theatrical style of improvisation that we started with with Tennessee Williams and Samuel Beckett. Uh, so I'm excited to to have like a very theatrical style that people are going to understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's not Kafka. It's not Kafka. That's that's my mantra nowadays. <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited to talk about Mammoth, and I think we should uh, definitely just talk about Mammoth first and the style of Mammoth, and then maybe start talking about how we would uh, stage that. Certainly, certainly. Okay. So tell me about your first thoughts on Mammoth. Well, my first thoughts on Mammoth. One of the things that comes up for me often is the there's a very particular cadence with his dialogue. It's not iambic pentameter, but it has this almost vaguely Shakespearean punctuation to ending sentences in the middle of a sentence before he goes on to the next sentence. And it it flows really beautifully when put in the mouth of an actor who can act. Oh, for sure. Um, And yeah, I think uh, Mamet's speak, as it is referred to, is uh, one of the the defining characteristics of Mamet's work. One of the, like, as, as far as stylistically goes, narrative aside. And it is something that makes his work so much fun to watch, you know, like uh, you'll watch a scene where nothing happens, really, except two guys talk about one thing. And it seems like there's so much action happening just within the rhythm of the dialogue. I think uh, I read somewhere when I was researching Mamet that it's the the, the way he uses swearing makes it work as though it's the iambic pentameter out of the vernacular of the underclass. (laughs) <laughs> something like that. Um, that is a pretentious like, wow. way to put it. And that is some art student was writing about Mammon. But yeah, that whole that whole rhythm of of uh, of repetition and sort of swearing in the middle and saying things over and over again is just it's just like a it's almost it's like poetry. 
Yeah. And for me, when I watch his films or I read his plays, it feels like he's trying to champion what he envisions the lower middle class to be. How do you mean? Well, it's it, the, the, the way that they swear and the way that they talk, it's, it's as if he's trying to make heroes out of these everyday people in what he imagines them. Not so much what it's like to be a working stiff, what it's like to have a nine to five job, because that doesn't that doesn't bleed through. It's the heroes of his his imagined nine to five job that that we see. And they're all very eloquent and they're all very poetic and they're all very thoughtful in their own way. I think there's actually a good parallel with Tennessee Williams in that. Tennessee Williams wrote about sort of the South and, and the the under, I guess, the, the lower class in the South. Uh, and yet his characters all spoke with a perfect poetic sounding like metaphor and, and the use of simile and imagery uh, that no person would ever talk with. But we accept it because it's this theatrical way of looking at it. And Mamet does the very same thing, but with that sort of working class guy. Yeah, yeah. One uh, One of my favorite mammetisms actually is the way that he deals with questions he he hates yes or no answers to questions he hates directly coming to a conclusion he'll often have his characters indirectly answer things so you know how long has he been with that girl his wife how long is a chinaman's name yeah for sure can he do the thing he was doing the thing before you were even born you know it's it's not saying a yes or a no. It's a way of kind of sidestepping the question such that eh, this could be the truth or it could not be. Yeah, I think actually uh, a mammoth quote that I was reading when I came across, but I was just, you know, again, in my reading, that I think speaks to this really well, is this idea that people may or may not say what they mean, but they always say something designed to get what they want. And I think that's just like a, a wonderful way to think about how he writes his dialogue because he doesn't necessarily write what people mean to say, but he writes what they need to say to get what they want. Uh, and it's this beautiful kind of uh, people are all, always kind of lying, but there's truth in what they say by, by what they mean by what they say. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It, it does. Yeah. It, you, your text may be what you meant, but the subtext often puts forward what you were trying to hide in some way or another. Yeah, the text may be a lie, but but what you want is coming out of it. You know, I would never say, pass me the water. I'd say something like, no, I'm fine. I'm not thirsty. Yeah. And then you pass me the water, <laughs> like things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so like the, the David Mamet sort of swearing thing is probably like the first thing everyone thinks of when they think of Mamet, lots of swear words. Uh, but I think... Um, his swear words aren't used in like a, a, a intentionally to be of, offensive or shocking, right? They're in there to, as I said before, that whole idea of the vernacular of the underclass. He's taking that, like the language that he thinks these people speak and really just putting it, make, using it to help forward the poetry of their dialogue. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It It comes across as crass sometimes, certainly. But crass because we're not a part of that world, not crass for the sake of crassness. Yes. When Gene, mm -hmm. Gene Hackman is talking in heist, he's always his character. It's never, it's never the, the sake of, for the sake of 
shock value that we hear him say the things that he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's never, it's not even shocking. Like after a while, it just disappears, all the, the swearing. You don't even notice it. Yeah, unlike something with Tarantino where the swearing is always present. You you never forget in Tarantino that that he's swearing, that he is being crass and rude. With with Mamet, it fades into the background after you've been watching for a little while. Yeah, and Tarantino is someone we should talk about on a podcast at some point. But uh, yeah, because his his uh, he enjoys those taboos, right? Which is why he uses a lot of racial uh, racial uh, ideas as well. Just because that kind of is one of the taboos we have left, and so is swearing, and so is violence. So he likes to play with those. So he does it very intentionally, so that we notice the swearing. Whereas Mamet does it very intentionally so that we don't notice the swearing yeah it's it's an interesting contrast between the two of them yeah uh, the other thing i love about what he does and this is something i i uh when i was watching american buffalo came up a couple times that i was like wow it's so true is he intentionally has characters say things incorrectly and so not only do they ask lots of questions and repeat what the other person is saying, but they'll intentionally misquote something uh, or have like, maybe like do like a mistaken idiom. Like there's a scene where uh, in American Buffalo where he's talking about how, what, what do you do with like a, a combination for a safe? You know, you write it down. So he's got it wrote down somewhere. Uh, and he says he's got it wrote down. And he says it twice that he's got it wrote down somewhere, which is just wrong. And that's not how you say it. And there's another part where he says, uh, you know what they say, you know, whatchamacallum is always the last to know. Like he, he says, whatchamacallum is always the last to know. Like he, he intentionally messes up the phrase to show that the character is fallible, you know, and that they're a real person uh, and that they can't just perfectly quote everything. I think uh, he, he's, Mamet's talked about it before, that, that people, uh, that often writers write too pretty and all of their dialogue is perfect. Whereas people don't talk like that. Yeah, his his characters are often saying things that seem mistaken. And and if you don't know an idiom, it seems like it could be an idiom or uh, or you believe it, but it also doesn't sound right. Uh, in Wag the Dog, it's like Plato once said, it doesn't matter how the fuck you get there once you get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's of course, of course, Plato didn't say that. That's that's ridiculous. And it, yeah, and it might be that Plato said something along those lines, but it's a it's kind of absurd to to believe Quote it. Plato. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a moment, uh, you know. Okay, so in my real life, uh, there's this woman who was she was saying like, you know, right from the gecko, the gecko, the gecko, and she thought the phrase was right from the gecko, not right from the get go, because. Right from the get-go doesn't necessarily make much more sense than right from the get-go as far as what that expression means. Um, from the get-go, what's that mean? Right. So she thought it was gecko, and that's what she did. Uh, and she just always said it that way her entire life, and it wasn't until one of us noticed that we were like, are you saying gecko? And that's the kind of thing he writes into his characters, these, these small little mis- misspeakings uh, that make them sound more, more authentic. Yeah, and I think part of that, too, goes back to his championing this lower middle class life. The, to, to speak eloquently, to speak perfectly, to quote accurately is a privilege of the upper class. And For sure. You can't do that if you're uh, a crook. You can't do that if you're a door-to-door salesman. You can't do that if you're the postman. 
Yeah. And that's actually another thing with the swearing is that it's the armor against their shitty life. I think it's like another way of thinking of it. Uh, that it's it's them just like, okay, I'm, I'm in a, a shitty situation. I, I can I can swear about it. Like it's the way I deal with it. Yeah. And I think part of that points to Mamet's intense cynicism about the nature of the world. Like for him, he looks at something like uh, the characters in Glengarry Glen Ross, or he looks at the characters in Wag the Dog, and he goes, you couldn't possibly actually be happy people. You know, mm-hmm. your, your, your life isn't very good. So you gain the pleasures where you can, you know, mouthing off a cop, getting a dig in at somebody who's better than you. Those sorts of things are the sorts of pleasures that you're allowed when you're his characters, because you couldn't possibly have an enjoyable life. Sure, yeah, and and uh, and I think I don't know if I could say this one hundred percent blanket statement, but I think all of his plays are about characters that are not in great situations. Huh. I'm trying to think if any of them are, or people are like privileged. Uh, I think the closest you get is in Speed the Plow, where it's like a Hollywood producer. But he's kind of the Hollywood producer. He's new at it, and he's kind of being shat on by other people trying to get this script through. So, like, it's not quite the privileged kind of that you'd expect from a, a movie about a Hollywood producer or a play about a Hollywood producer. Yeah. I mean, Wag the Dog is somewhat of a privileged position, right? It's De Niro playing this this fixer who comes in to solve the president's problem, and he goes and gets a film producer and a music producer, and he... He gets all these people to come together, but it's never really their problem. They're just the ones solving it. It's mm, yeah. So yeah, I can't say it as a blanket statement. I'm glad I didn't. But it is more generally true. I think he he does like people who are in the thick of some frustrating problem in their life. Yeah, I mean, in in the thick of life, really, like the the almost like death of a salesman, sort of like let's deal with the part of life that people will relate to trying to get a job dealing with dealing with like people from like you know who are more important than you looking down on you and and uh taking advantage of you and stuff like that like those are things that people deal with all the time yeah which he extends even into his crime movies like ronin or heist where the characters aren't like we would never be in those situations as people i'm never going to be considered a modern day ronin samurai i'm never going to be considered a bank thief but we can we can see ourselves in the characters because they're going through the same kinds of doubts and feelings that you go through at your midlife a lot of his movies seem like they're written for a midlife crisis yeah i guess (laughs) because they're they're all kind of about middle life yeah yeah they're they're that point where you realize that you're probably at the height of your job. You're not going to get much better than this. You're not going to get more money. Your best years are behind you. And this is it. This is the this is the next 20 years of your life to look forward so, to. <laughs> so, so depressing when you say it like that. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Mammoth's movies are depressing. Even, even with their comedy, even... Even with their their moments of levity and laughter, or their occasional happy ending, they're not. Yeah, it's true. You know, I'd say Glengarry Glen Ross is a tragedy. Like it ends so tragically with like 
everyone sort of scattered into the wind and and uh, and and Levine going to jail. Yeah. And his daughters in the hospital. Like like it's like there's nothing about that ending that's like, oh good, it wrapped up nicely. Everyone came out okay. <laughs> like nobody comes out okay in that movie. Well, and even Heist, where, you know, Gene Hackman in the end gets away with the gold. He's lost all his friends. He's lost his wife. His career is gone. He's lost the boat that he loved. There's, mm-hmm. I mean, he won, but the cost <laughs> of winning was so high that you wouldn't want to be that character. Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> and sad. And sad. Yeah. What yeah, the, so like, uh, so, oh, go for it. Go oh, for it. Uh, I was just going to say, one of the other things uh, about Mammoth that I found is he he likes to put professionals amidst incompetence. Hmm, explain. Well, he's he's a big fan of having characters who are very good at what they do. Either they're great salesmen, they're a great uh, hitman for hire, they're a great uh, spin doctor, but he likes to put them with a bunch of people who don't know what they're talking about, who don't really know what they're doing. And so you see in Ronan... You see Robert De Niro, who is a consummate professional, and you see a couple other characters who don't even know how to properly do a shootout. And yeah. and the the clash between them derives a large part of the plot. And you can see that throughout. That's the same thing we see in Glengarry Glen Ross with Well, I was about to say, like, did the did Ronan come out in film like as a, a film version of it before Glengarry Glen Ross did? Do we know that fact? I, I don't believe so, but I can double... Uh, Ronan came out in 98. Oh, so way after. Yeah. Because Glengarry Glen Ross, like the original stage play, doesn't have that uh, in it. Um, but then when he adapted it to the screen, he wrote in the Alec Baldwin character at the beginning, Blake, uh, who does that beautiful speech of always be closing, like the most famous speech from that whole movie, wasn't in the play, uh, and was added in. And so it's almost like... When he originally wrote it, he was in his like, I love this down on bunch of guys down on their luck kind of thing, but then wanted to bring in that that uh, superior salesman to kind of show how terrible the situation is. And he must have liked it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I also think there's the Ricky Roma character who is definitely a better salesman than the others as well, but he's not... He's not Alec Baldwin, that's for sure. Yeah, maybe it was like he, he it, that's what he intended Roma to do, but then later was like, ah, it's not enough. I want to add another character at the beginning to show that they're all bad. <laughs> Even Roma, because Roma loses that client. And then what you see kind of come up in his later work is he puts, he, he likes to understate genius. Uh, it's, so with, with Baldwin, it's very on the nose. He is the best salesman ever, and you have to love him. Mm-hmm. But in in things like Wag the Dog, you know, one of the characters uh, tells Gene Hackman, oh, I bet you're good at chess. And he responds, I would be if I could remember how the pieces move. <laughs> it's a good line. It's it's a great line, but it, it's it's meant to just show that he's a little more humble. He's not as cocky about the the talents that he has. Even but he's so cocky about it by saying he would be if he remembered how the pieces move. So like, oh yeah, I could kick your ass if I learned how to play. Like, <laughs> it's it's this incredibly cocky non cockiness. But yeah. it's also another example of what you're saying earlier about his never answering a yes or no question with yes or no. <laughs> right. 
I bet you're good at chess. And then boom, beautiful answer. Not not a one word answer. Yeah. I just love his uh, and that like back on the the dialogue too because it's such mammoth speak so important. That idea of of having characters cut each other off in the middle of dialogue, having people speak over each other, having like that kind of very sloppy dialogue. It's not perfectly timed and perfectly pretty. Um, like that scene in uh, the scene in Glenn Gary Glenn Ross when they're talking about the robbery idea, uh, and it's like uh, it's uh, what are the two characters' names? Moss and the other guy, um, and they're just talking about that. Like, uh, are we talking about this? No, we're not talking about it. Are we speaking about? It? We're speaking about this, so we're just we're not talking. No, not talking about a, a a robbery. No, not a robbery. And they're sort of speaking over each other and at the same time and cutting each other off and interrupting each other gives it this incredibly beautiful sound that it almost seems like it could not be written that way. And yet it is written that way. And there's also that ties into the way he talks around the topic of the conversation sometimes. He's he's a big fan of saying things like, can he do the thing? Or he's got to hold together until the thing where they show a familiarity with what they're talking about yeah. instead of directly... You know, can, can he rob the bank? Can he do the job? Whatever. He he's comfortable leaving conversations vague because the characters already know what's being said. Yeah, exactly. And that's that that sort of like what they say doesn't really matter. Uh, it's what they mean. You know, it's that whole uh, and, and what they're trying to get out of it is what they say. He's a big Stanislavski fan with that whole motivation and objective stuff. Yeah. Because uh, he is like a, a writer and director. So he's like a, uh, he writes as a director sometimes where he knows what his characters want and he writes it in. Uh, I think actually one of the funniest things he said was, uh, I was watching this interview with him and he was talking to these actors and he was like, uh, and he was like, the, the person you are is 100% more interesting than the best character you can play. Uh, so don't be interesting, all right? The writer does that for you. <laughs> and I was like, while he's directing this show that he wrote, he says, that the writer did that for you. Like, him. I made you clever. Just be yourself and just, like, what do they want? What do they want? What do they want? What does it look like she wants from me? What does it look like he wants from me? Just, like, such a director-writer-director combo kind of thing. Uh, it's awesome. It's great. Well, and and what's what's interesting about that is, I think about how much I I love his characters writing and and the the way that they speak but I think about the plots of his movies and they're far too intricate. You think? I do. I it's you can never really tell where a story is going to be going with with Mammoth. Hmm. Are were you going to say that they're simple? Um, I was gonna say, but I see where I see your point here that there you can never see where it's going. Uh, but I think it's because it doesn't really go anywhere that you can never really see where it's going. And and what you think the story is about, the action of it, never even takes place. Uh, although I'm only speaking mostly of American Buffalo and Gang Glengarry Glen Ross and Speed the Plow. Like nothing, like it, it. It's almost like, hey, we're gonna do a bank heist, but then actually, someone, someone double crosses them. Yeah, well, and and that's the thing with with both Ronan and Heist, which are his heist movies. They they do have the action happen, but that's not the plot of the movie. The plot yeah. of the movie is what happens on either side of it, and 
and I guess that's that's what I mean when I'm talking about his complicated plots because at the beginning of the movie Heist or at the beginning of the movie Ronin you have absolutely no idea where you're going to be 2 hours from now you you can't you can't really predict the the journey that the characters are going to go through mm-hmm. because he's not telling the story that he that it seems like on the face he is telling. Yeah, like if if I was to tell you on the face, Glengarry Glen Ross is about uh, these guys that rob an office. <laughs> but when you watch Glengarry Glen Ross, it has nothing to do with these guys that rob an office. You know, like yeah, it's about them just trying to get sales and yelling at each other and hating each other and leaving and and being upset and begging each other and all this trying to get more money. Uh, and then it just happens like the actual like story arc <laughs> that just happens to be they rob the office. Yeah, well, and that, it's the same thing with heist where the 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 heist happens I think three different times in the movie. <laughs> like it it and it's it just it's too clever for me in in mm-hmm. that in in that I buy into the characters and I buy into the setting. I just don't buy into the narrative. Well, you know, American Buffalo is the same kind of way, right? Like, it is them. It's these guys at a pawn shop uh, who and the whole premise of the, sh- the story, the narrative, the actual arc is that he sold an American Buffalo nickel to someone uh, and found out that he could have got more money for it. So now they're trying. They, they talk about how they're going to steal it back. And then uh, a guy comes in and he has an American Buffalo for him, the guy that was going to steal it. But he didn't actually steal it. He bought it to replace it. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> like, you're right. It's like, it seems like if it were to be simple, they would just go and steal the coin back. And that's a simple story. But that's not what happens. Yeah. And I think part of that is Mamet's point in that nothing is simple. Nothing yeah. goes according to the plan. But yeah. when you're watching it as a story, it it can be hard to take in as an audience yeah, member. And, and like, yeah, the story is is never really resolved or finished or complete. No. <clears throat> yeah, he leaves things incomplete. Incomplete. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case with him. But that's one of those mammoth things right there that I just did. When I said incomplete, he would have a character say incomplete. Even though in the editing room someone would say, "Oh, that should be incomplete, not incomplete." He said, like, "Leave it." That's how the character talked. <laughs> yeah, he's not he's he's a little emotional right now, so he's not saying things perfectly. So he would say incomplete. Now, I have a question for you because I haven't read Wag the Plow. Wag the Plow? <laughs> See, there's another mammatism. Uh Speed the Plow? Yeah. I haven't read Speed the Plow. But does he directly explain the title, Speed the Plow? So the fascinating thing about it is at the very beginning of it... Oh, wait. Maybe I'm thinking of a different play. I think you're thinking of Speed the Plow. There's a quote that's in the beginning of the play that expressly is not supposed to be said out loud before the play starts. Um, which is brilliant, but he never, I don't think he, uh, explicitly explains it throughout the show. I can't, I can't think of it. Well, and the reason that I say that is because Ronan starts with, uh, title cards that explain what a Ronan is. What a Ronan is? Yeah. Like it, it, you know, it, it tells the story of, uh, masterless samurai, you know, Mm -hmm. samurai who Mm -hmm. have let their master die. And so they, they become Ronan when they have failed. And and so it explains that through through opening cards. Uh, Wag the dog does the same thing, where it it tells the joke of why does the dog wag its tail? 
because a dog is smarter than its tail. And it, it starts the movie with that. And, hmm. and then later on in the film, he will re-reference that usually directly. He, he repeats the wag, the wag, the dog joke in that movie he has a character in Ronan explain the story of the 47 Ronan who all took their own life lives. So he, he wants you to know the title means something for these characters and it's very direct. He, he doesn't, it, it's nothing subtle. Hmm. So that's why I was asking about speed the plow because well, and speed the plow is uh, done as a stage play. So they don't have like a title card or anything that could come up. Uh, right. And I don't think they've made it into a movie, have they? Not, not that I'm aware of. No, it hasn't been. Because um, uh, if it, because it's kind of a dissection of the movie business, um, like that. He wrote it after he had dealt with Hollywood a little bit. Yeah. And then he went back and wrote this play, kind of dissecting and making a little bit of poking a little bit of fun at Hollywood. Yeah. Cool. Um, but like, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about like we're we're kind of talking about his story structure but also just like the narrative elements of his style uh, and like the thematically, not, not thematic so much as narrative elements, but I guess we can do both. Let's do both. Okay. Thematic and or narrative elements of, of Mammoth's work. Cause I think one of the clear themes we've already discussed is this idea of, uh, of sort of that working class. Yeah. And, uh, and the underclass I'm going to call it, but he also so there seems to be this uh, theme that I, I've been in all of the work I've been watching and reading of people bitching about things. <laughs> like no character is in a good situation. And so they, the, the show will often start with people bitching about the situation they're in uh, and how unfair it is th- that they're of the, the hand they've been dealt or the life that they're living. Yeah. And I think that that's an important component, the unfairness of it. It's almost as if Mamet is writing after the American dream has been realized as shallow. Yes. I can't have the things that I was promised when I was younger. I'm not going to have it better than my parents had it. This is life. This isn't cool, man. This is unfair. Yeah. Yeah. I deserve better than this because whatever. It's not my fault that the leads are weak. Yeah. It's not my fault that the heist went bad. It's not my fault that I was sleeping with an intern. Yeah, exactly. All, all these sorts of things where characters don't want to take responsibility for their own actions. Mm-hmm. So they're just, they're bitching about life. They're bitching about it all. Um, and actually, that's funny. The, the monologue that was written into the beginning of Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. I think that's what he says right at the beginning, right? He's like, so what you bitching about? Uh, you bitching about that sale you blew, and he's smoking <laughs> and he's yeah. putting out the cigarette, uh, and it's just like it's great. That's exactly what is happening at the beginning of that show. At the beginning of most shows, I think uh, American Buffalo starts the same way. Uh, Speed the Plow. I'm pretty sure it starts with him on the phone, but I think he is bitching about how he can't find it, what he's looking for. It's something where people say. Uh... Uh, Mamet fell into a conservatism in his later life where he started to just become more and more conservative. But I think you find that throughout his work. He's very much uh, an advocate for people who lift themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah. Take responsibility for your life and do it. As opposed to, well, I should I should get a handout because I'm a hard worker or whatever. Well, no, not everyone not everyone's going to succeed. Yeah. 
Uh, and actually, that might explain why later in his life uh, he converted politically to uh, to become a conservative. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I think is uh, is this, uh, and actually, in Speed the Plow and Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, there's this reference to across the street. Across the street. <laughs> yeah. So instead of saying what the competition is. Uh, using the phrase across the street. You could have taken this across the street. It's like, you know, I might just move across the street. Uh, and this like, <laughs> and I don't know, if, I don't know if it's in any other work. But I just noticed it in those two as this across the street kind of idea. But this idea that it's like, uh, and I think that ties in more with what you were saying earlier about vagary, uh, where the characters don't need to be specific about what they mean by going across the street. You know that when I say, you know, you might, we got to watch out. I might just move across the street that I'm going to go work for someone else. And you know who I don't have to say it. We know how language works, and we don't. the 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 idiom across the street means something very clear to us, and as an audience member, where who who cares what across the street actually is? Mm-hmm. Wh- whether it's a a better heist manager or whether it's a better office, it it for the sake of the conversation, it's unimportant. Yeah, it's just across the street. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, again, it doesn't matter what he says. It's the intention, sort of thing. Um, and what he's trying to get out of using that phrase that matters the most with Mammoth's work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I haven't seen Heist, so I'm not sure what how Heist works as, as far as this next thing I'm about to say. But because Mammoth is a playwright, first, firstly, uh, wrote lots of plays, a lot of his, his work seems to be like one, maybe two locations in the entire thing. Uh, is Heist like that? Or is Heist... Well, Heist was written as a film, I believe. It was, but he does... He does like to root around central locations. So one of them is this this dock house area where a lot of the story takes place in. Mm-hmm. And the same thing actually very much with Wag the Dog. Wag the Dog takes place for probably a full third of the movie entirely in a single house, in mm-hmm. a single room in that house. So he does like to to stick to the playwright sensibilities of very few locations. Yeah, and also I think it's it comes it 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 spawns one from his uh, theatrical background and loving theater or writing for theater, uh, and uh, two I think it is his work is so dialogue focused, um, and it's all in that way of speaking, or not all, but it, it he has his dialogue is so important to to his work that. You don't need a lot of locations. You don't need a lot of moving. You don't need a lot of action. So, hey, let's just keep it here. This is a good spot. Why are we moving around? We'll stay in the office and go. Uh, and again, that happens in Ronin, too, if you think about it, where uh, a large part of the movie happens entirely in this anonymous warehouse where they're camped mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like one, two locations maybe. Uh, there's possibilities of going to more if you need to, but it is like, I think... Uh, yeah, Glengarry's just basically the office and the restaurant across the street. Yeah. Uh, and the car. They go into the people's cars and stuff. In the film, at least, they do a lot more moving, I think, just because they can. And um, I'm pretty sure American Buffalo is all in the pawn shop. Oh, wait, no, I think in Act 2 they go to his house. Yeah, they are at the guy's house. Uh, but So there's two locations. Similar with Phil Spector. I think there might be three locations in that entire film. Mm-hmm. Which is great because it forces the, the film and, and uh, the movie, uh, the story, the narrative to be about 
the characters and how they feel and their emotions and what they talk about and what they want as opposed to being about some action adventure quest. You know, they're not going from here to there to there. It's staying in the same place, circling the same thing until something comes out of it. Yeah. One of the other things that I like about Mamet's style in in what I've been watching recently is usually the opening of the movie, it's, you know, a, a long, drawn-out, tension-filled opening where we meet most of the characters. Mm-hmm. Like whether whether we you know really meet them or not is unimportant, but we we get glimpses of them. Uh, heist opens with this kind of methodical journey through the first heist that we're going to see for these characters, and we see the whole main cast. Same thing with Ronan, where it takes place. The opening scene takes place in a bar, and we see them all arriving into the bar and the mm-hmm. tensions around them. Mm-hmm. And Wag the dog does the same thing, where it's this long almost tracking shot through the white house as we follow Mm -hmm. the main character and the couple other characters that he's going to find so we we get to meet the whole cast of characters that we're going to interact with before we ever interact with them Mm -hmm. yeah it's great it's a it's a wonderful technique and it sets everything up beautifully and it sets it up to me that sets it up to be hey this is about these characters exactly this isn't about this great narrative arc or great story it's about these characters so hey guess what i'm going to set up a story arc but that's not really important <laughs> it's actually about these characters and so like uh yeah that that's a, a great observation and actually that's something that mammoth was is is uh again in this thing where he was sorry in this piece where he was uh telling all these actors what to do um, watching him direct <laughs> one of the things he was saying is he's like don't narrate your actions to the other character like don't narrate your story don't don't indicate to them what the story is that doesn't matter you just be your character and what can try and get what you want and then that's it that's all that matters Uh, and i was like well that's very sort of classic stanislavski like acting 101 kind of thing but that is where he writes from and so his stories sort of tell that kind of story the narrative doesn't don't don't tell the story just focus on these characters and what they want it's almost as if, and I don't know how entirely true this is, but it's almost as if his narratives are meant to arise naturally from the characters as opposed to the characters being put into a situation. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is, this is funny. So over the summer, I was in Seattle at the Emergence Festival, their, their improv festival there. And one of the big things we were talking about was allowing this story to emerge in the audience's mind and not telling them the story, just giving them, you know, pieces of the story and showing them scenes and characters and allowing them to come up with their own story as to, to what it all meant. I mean, not saying Mamet does that to the, the degree we were talking about it, but his stories are like, what the hell was this story about? And at the end, you get to kind of come to, in your own mind, tell the story of these characters. Yeah, and I would I would say that's definitely Mamet now that I now that I really think about his his films in that at the end of it it's ambiguous enough that you get to piece together whatever you want the main narrative to be mm-hmm. what what you want even the theme to be mm-hmm. because his themes I mean he certainly does have some on the nose stuff to say about uh the lower middle class and that sort of stuff. But there's also an, an extent to which it's, yeah, this is just life, you know, find your own thread to pull at. Yeah. Like I was talking to someone once and 
Glengarry Glen Ross came up and they lit up because they loved the film. And something they said that threw me, I was totally thrown off, was that they said, oh, I love that always be closing. Get them to sign on the line that is dotted. I used to tell my employees that all the time. And I was kind of thrown by it for a second. Uh, because I, when I watched Glengarry Glen Ross, that seems like the negative attitude of the film, right? Like that's the the problem with this thing. And the whole story is about how salesmen are sleazy and terrible and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and they watched it from a perspective of a salesperson thinking like that is totally how you do it. That guy is nailing it. That's perfectly exactly the philosophy that we all should be following when we're doing sales. And it totally was like a moment of, whoa, that movie is more than just one story. Huh. That That's almost like someone walking away from Wag the Dog thinking, yeah, man, politics is all about pageantry. And so you just have to be, you know, you have to be a good beauty show contestant to be a good politician. That's yeah. almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's funny, though, because if you look at Glengarry Glen Ross through the lens of like of uh, of Alec Baldwin being actually a big shot hero. Because nothing bad happens to him. No, he does great. You know, and like his if if you just see the film and not the play, then Alec Baldwin could be like, yeah. He's the one that we should all be striving to be. And these guys, because they're such bad salesmen, have to like rob the office and they are sitting there lying to people all the time on the phone. And we watch them like go through all these like pretending to be someone else, trying to con people. And Alec Baldwin never, never cons anybody. You know, maybe he is the good guy. Maybe he is the right proper salesman. And these guys are failing because they're trying to cheat people. And I and it's like, but it's just that kind of, that, that kind of sentence from a person just like, that that's the thing that take away from that film just makes me realize like, whoa, uh, this is my story is different from their story. And uh, Mamet is such a, uh, I guess, prolific writer because he can achieve that where we can leave with different stories. Hmm. That That's really interesting to me. I think part of it ties into going back to that conservative outlook in that there is something you know, very traditional about Alec Baldwin's character in in traditional sort of you can do this if you try. Just get out there and do the work and and good things will happen to you sort of mentality. Like that that's definitely there in the film. Yeah. It's just not what we took out of it because we're I don't know, maybe we see ourselves more as the uh the sad middle class yeah the downtrodden down on our luck dealing with everything uh dealing with the shit of those above us but at the same time at the end of that movie you don't like any of those salesmen you're not a fan of roma no you're not a fan of roma you don't like levine you don't like moss you don't like the other guy uh actually the other guy might be the only one you kind of (laughs) like because he's the only one that's kind of like oh i just can't do it oh poor me (laughs) you know he's he's just so pathetic though i feel sorry for him so one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, and uh, I don't know how much we want to talk about it, is mammoth and women. Uh, yes, that is something we do have to talk about because it is, uh, I guess, a hot topic when it comes to David Mamet. It is. And what's interesting for me is that I came into it expecting to be, why well, I, I came into it expecting to be offended as a feminist more than I was. Mm-hmm. I surprisingly found Mamet wasn't as bad 
with his portrayal of women as I had remembered him to be or as I had expected him to be. Yeah, I mean, when I think about Mammoth and women, mostly what I think about is just a lack of women. Like, they just aren't present. Um, Certainly. Not that they are ever shown in a poor light or put down in any derogatory way. The one woman I can think of is in uh, Speed the Plow, the female lead, because there's two guys and one female in that play. And she is equally as deceptive and backstabbing as the two men. There's no like uh, necessarily like differentiation between it. I mean, I think it is about her like getting the guy, the guy wants to sleep with her, the two guys want to sleep with her, and then she sleeps with one of them. And then because she had this ulterior motive and stuff like that, and she was using them the way they were using her. So it's like all of them are just using each other. And it wasn't like the woman was portrayed as in any more negative of a light than the men were. Yeah, it's it's similar in Ronan where there's only one female character and she ends up being as conniving and backstabby and again using sex as a, a tool to get what she wants. I guess that's the, the biggest criticism there is that is that when he writes a woman character, he writes them using sex as a weapon. Yeah, and actually Heist has the probably the worst instance of it where Gene Hackman uses his wife as an object to be passed around to the other criminal to throw him off and well, that's that's pretty terrible. <laughs> okay. it, it is it is pretty terrible. And the the frustrating part about it is other than that, her character is reasonably well developed and interesting. <laughs> but oh mammoth. <laughs> the the interesting exception when I look at Phil Spector, which is uh, his latest, I think, and it's got Al Pacino and Helen Mirren as the leads in it, with Al Pacino playing the the Phil Spector character. But it's all about Helen Mirren, and it's all about her character's journey and, and how interesting her character is. And she's a well-developed, interesting female in a mammoth piece uh, and, and really drives the show. Does she use sex as a weapon? She doesn't. She's sick mm. for the entirety of the film, which I'm not quite sure what to take of that. But hmm. <laughs> me neither. Let's so, leave that one. <laughs> yeah, but he can he can write women reasonably well. In Wag the Dog, we see similarly a few female characters who seem reasonably well developed and do interesting things for the plot. But I think the problem is when he does write a problematic woman, it's it's just painful to watch yeah yeah so i think i think to me the the when when i was choosing the show to do that was the 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 flag there was that oh man this is a very male focused cast and male focused show um but then upon looking into mammoth more and more i realized well it's actually not necessarily a male focused show uh and we can easily play it with more female characters than i originally saw in my brain right like uh, originally in my brain, I was like, it's going to be a cast of four guys. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, no, it could be like four guys and two girls. That's fine. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. And I think it just has to do with his masculine themes. Like when he's writing something like Glengarry or when he's writing something like Heist, he's generally seeing male characters in those settings yes. because he's writing from a 60s, 70s, 80s perspective. True. Yeah. He is a man of a different age, too, especially like. And he's now a conservative. Yeah. Um, 
but but yeah like uh um it it makes a degree of sense yeah i think i think the because there's definitely uh, i mean i don't think we can argue that there's no sexism in his work like no like we're not going to say that um but it is not as it's much more of the sexism just by um not 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 writing female characters yeah as opposed to a sexism by writing female characters as objects, except for in that one instance in Heist, which is crazy that he did that. Why did he do that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's a common enough kind of theme in the in the crime genre, you know, seduce him so that you can get yeah. under his skin. But it, I mean, when you have the husband passing his wife off to do that, you're like, uh. And then, I mean, in Speed the Plow, the thing is, like, they are treating her like an object, but she's treating them like an object back. And so there's a little bit of a twist on that sort of sexist motif, and I think that's part of the point. But uh, but it still is there. So I think I think uh, when it comes to actually doing Mamet improvise, like performing it as part of our season, uh, I think that sexism, I'm just going to erase. I'm going to take it out, and we're not going to be sexist because Mamet was sexist. You know, like, that's – and that's sort of where when I'm – when we stage these shows with Paper Street, that we kind of drop the line, like, I like with Tarantino, it was like all all the race, uh, race racism that happens in his movies. We just took that and we just didn't even touch it when we did the show, and no one commented on it. Yeah, I mean, I think the big difference is with someone like Tarantino. Tarantino is using it as a tool deliberately to say something, whereas Mamet. It, he isn't writing the women that he writes as a statement on the, the the nature of film or the nature of women in film. He's True. doing it because he has sexist attitudes. <laughs> yes, that's a great way to say it. <laughs> Although, in Speed the Plow, kind of maybe doing it on purpose, but not enough. I still think you're right that he's he's doing it just because he happens to kind of be sexist. Yeah, and there's there's no need to replicate the sins of the people that we're we're drawing on. No, we're gonna we're going to try to uh, recreate the wonderful parts of what they write about. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mammoth and women, check done. Um. Well, this has been this has been a pretty great dissection of mammoth. Uh, I'm enjoying it, and uh, and I think we should spend just a little bit here at the end before we end this podcast, just talking about the challenges of trying to uh, recreate that in an improvised way, because uh, we are improvisers. Certainly. And I do plan to improvise in the style of David Mamet. And so what are going to be the challenges of doing that? And what are going to be the nice and fun and easy parts of doing that? Because, I mean, the fun and easy parts are are the costuming and the sets. just going to be great. Just like, man, it's going to look so good. Just like offices and, and warehouses and uh, and suits. Ugh, super easy. <laughs> you know in Ronan, De Niro sleeps in his suit? Uh, see? So easy. Don't even need pajamas. Yeah. Um, so getting that part of it is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and and kind of one of the easier shows we've done in a while uh, as far as setting, like what to do. What should we make the set look like? Easy peasy. Um, I think the challenges are going to be getting everyone on board with and up to speed with uh, the mammoth speak. The language is definitely going to be tricky. He his cadences are going to require a lot of work on the part of everyone because you don't speak in mammoth speak in day-to-day life. No, you don't. And uh, and you, I mean, you almost do, but you don't. And as soon as you get on stage, you're going to try and speak like an actor. 
<clears throat> and it's going to be hard to like make it sound intentionally bad or intentionally like like a sort of that talking over each other and overly repeating things kind of style uh doing that intentionally without doing it by accident because if you do it by accident it sounds bad if you do it intentionally then it sounds great <laughs> and if you don't do it at all it doesn't sound like mammoth yeah yeah well and and one of the other things is his his use of repetition in a in a sentence or in in a dialogue monologue sort of thing and i think this goes to the the kind of natural or the attempt to sound natural or normal he'll he'll repeat sentences and and phrases in in monologues because we repeat ourselves we go over the same points again and again sometimes. So mm -hmm. it's it's not a war. It's a pageant. We need a theme, a song, some visuals. It's like a pageant. Yeah, like exactly. It, 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 he has to restate it again because that's how we talk. And and remembering that when you're on stage is going to be really difficult. And he also does like, a, um, and, and that repeating the question the other person asks you, uh, which yeah, as improvisers, it's like, don't do that. That's just, you're just stalling. Just answer the question. Uh, first of all, it's like, as improvisers, don't ask questions. Second of all, don't repeat the person. Just answer it. Uh, we're going to be breaking both those improv sort of standard thoughts. You know, like, I'm going to say something like, where were you last night? And then you're going to say, where was I last night? And I'm going to say, yeah, where were you? And then you'll say, it's none of your business where I was. <laughs> and so, like, that just that simple exchange there is just like so it's stalling but that's what the character is doing the character is trying to stall uh because they don't know what to say either and they're thinking and so again it's that idea that what they say uh is only it, it what they say isn't necessarily true but it is the way they get what they want yeah yeah you ever kill anybody i hurt somebody's feelings once yeah, you know, exactly. It, it it doesn't answer the question. It doesn't give us exactly what we were looking for, but it does fulfill the the need of the conversation and yeah. and lets you know a little bit about the characters. But yeah, and even so, it's that. Did you ever kill anybody? Kill anybody? Yeah. Did you ever kill anybody? Well, how do you mean kill? I mean dead. I hurt someone's feeling once. You know, like like he'd go like that almost a little. That yeah. like back and forth tennis match of uh, of what do you mean? Um, which is going to be a lot of fun. I think once we figure it out and get into it, uh, but it is going to be like that first big step into mammoth. And then, and then the other big challenge I see is not telling the story. Yeah. L letting, letting the story arise out of the characters is, I mean, f that's something that we, we try and champion as improvisers. Anyway, we try and say, yeah, the story will just come. But in, in mammoth, it really just pops up. Yeah, and it's almost like we want we have to set up almost a false errand, you know, like like this story. Yeah, so here we are. We're trying to we're trying to make a movie. This story has nothing to do with making a movie. <laughs> Enjoy. Like that's that's almost it. Like we have to set up this story that that looks like it's the story that's going to carry through, and it does. And we know it's over when that overarching story ends. Ends, you know, like we know. The American Buffalo is over when he gets the American Buffalo nickel back. Uh, we know Glengarry Glen Ross is over when the heist is done and they catch the guy who did it. But that's just sort of like our, our idea of like, we're going to end when this objective is fulfilled. That's not the end of the story at all. And in fact, the story ends in like this tragic, un 
like like crappy situation and there's still more story after that even though the play is over yeah the the story or the the play or the movie ends when the character arcs are completed yes for the most part not all the character arcs necessarily but no the, the the main character arc yeah as opposed to when we hit the plot completion yeah yeah the plot well the plot mm. doesn't even matter yeah. it just ends and that's when we turn the lights down yeah you know like emma turns the lights down as soon as the guy goes gets arrested but whatever's happened with everyone else's stories may still be unresolved and unfinished <laughs> and people leave going wow oh man i know what happened and they all have their own story in the head as to what happened yeah ideally okay. or what that story was about and i think that's going to be hard it's going to be hard to not just want to make it all about the story i think that's going to be part of the joy of it though getting to revel in these characters is I think a, a good opportunity for improvisers to just kind of let go mm -hmm. and just play. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really an element of playing with characters who, I mean, that's the thing. His characters aren't necessarily fun, but they are interesting. So playing mm -hmm. with interesting characters. Yeah. I think interesting is a good way to say it. They're complicated. They, they, uh, the, Hey, they're, they're like you because you are a hundred percent more interesting than any character you'll ever play. <laughs> Don't be interesting. The writer's doing that for you. <laughs> oh, Mamet, you're such a pretentious ass. He really is, man. When you hear him talk, you're like, yeah, he is such a writer and director. You know, like, he's so, like, comes from that place. Well, and, and I mean, that's the thing. When, when, I, when I think about his movies and I think about his plays, it's almost as if he's always writing a movie or doing a play about writing a movie or putting on a play in the sense that, like, it's he it it always seems like the events of the story are an allegory for how difficult it is to get people in hollywood to do something yeah <laughs> yeah like just again and again you know i am this this genius and no one understands me and they won't just let me do what i want and put on this movie they're gonna make me change the ending or they're gonna make me add things that i don't want to add <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> awesome <laughs> um yeah cool uh how you feeling i feel like we've, we've covered mammoth pretty well yeah i think we we did a good journey through his uh his film and place yeah i think uh and i think it's gonna be a really fun show too i'm actually very excited about it yeah it's gonna be a good way to kick off paper streets uh fifth season yeah and then the next one is of course uh the christmas show which is lethal christmas which we'll talk about uh soon yes as well as our third show in the season, which is maybe, I think, going to be the audience's favorite. I don't know. Christmas action movies are pretty good. Yeah, but everyone loves a Canadian author, the lovely Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood. <laughs> <laughs> to close our season with The Handmade Tale. Well, I'm looking forward to having a chance to talk about those. Yeah, that's going to be great. Well, Steve, thank you so much. And uh, as in the words of David Mamet, fuck you. <laughs> have a good week dave love you man love you bye-bye i was trying to be i was trying to do my best ed harris there yeah my best ed harris at the in glengarry Glen ross you know what the roma i'm out of here i'm not going home i'm going to wisconsin <laughs>